Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we will be your hosts for this fantastic hour. This week, Jeff, I'm amped about current events and energy, as always. Ooh. So tell me, what's, what's, uh, what do we have to look forward to? Well, lots of news out of the White House this week, as always. Uh, um, and we have things to say about uh, Trump. Um, we, uh, we're going to also talk about um, uh, electric vehicles. Oh, I'm, I'm always excited about electric vehicles. That, does that just mean that we'll uh, be interviewing Mr. Elon Musk himself? Uh, close. We're going to interview Dr. Alan Jen, a researcher at UC Davis. Ooh, that does sound quite fun. So, all that and more when we return on Watch Radio. So, stay with us. Radio. Welcome back, Jeff. So, what's going on in the world of energy, Hunch? Jeff, uh, you know, I I did read the news this week and last week. Um, I read the news every week, Jeff. Uh, I and I read that there was good news for renewables. There, there's good news for renewables. Well, I, I guess it's usually good if there's any good news because there's not often very good news. But I read that no news was good news, Jeff. Mm. That might be true. So renewables, what's what's going on with that? Well, Jeff, uh, you know, I was reading that in the U.S. now, um, as of uh, early this year, that um, renewables now generate as much electricity as uh, as all the country's nuclear fleet, which is an odd headline because I thought that the nuclear fleet was almost like a renewable. Yeah, nuclear is zero carbon technology, but the major difference is it's dispatchable, which 
for those that don't know, that means it can generate electricity 24 hours a day, mm. whereas solar tends to only work during the daytime. Oh, yeah. Well, also, um, you know what? I haven't heard about any massive um, environmental disasters that were attributable to uh, wind farms. I, I believe actually quite a few bats and birds get um, executed yearly from wind farms. Oh, dang it. So, Jeff, is there? there's really just no way that we can probably produce energy with no environmental impacts. Oh, and that's sad. And speaking of British Petroleum, um, uh, <laughs> BP is also, I guess, coming around to the, the new reality of um, uh, low-cost renewable fuels and uh, a low-carbon future. Wait, what? Yeah, so I don't know BP, Beyond Petroleum, perhaps, as they've rebranded, um, the, the, one of the world's largest oil producers, first and foremost, um, does this thing every year where they take an outlook of what the world's energy is going to be like into the future. And every year they release their, their annual energy outlook. Um, and so what happened in this one, for a first, is they actually see demand for oil peaking and the use of oil playing a smaller role in the global economy in the 2030s, the late 2030s. So that doesn't sound like much. It's not that bullish of a, you know, a view of technolo technology and how it's shaping our future, but it is big coming from an oil giant. Well, Jeff, I don't know, actually. So, you know, I'm having kids, and I find that as I'm moving into my late 30s, I'm probably driving more. Um, but, but maybe that's not... Maybe that's not... That's not what they're talking about? No. So what they're looking at is they think electric vehicles are going to actually make a much bigger impact than they previously thought. So they have it as 30% of vehicle miles traveled are going to be fueled on electricity um, by around 2040. Wow, that's a lot. Because, you know, right now in, like, California, I think we might have um, 1% or a few percent electric vehicles on the road um, of the total vehicle stock. But um, I think that's probably something like like a, a tenth or less than a percent of the vehicle miles traveled. So having a third of vehicle miles traveled be electric would be a real huge change. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. But the huge thing is not the projection. It's that an oil company whose bread and butter is to sell you petrol, because they're British, of course, is uh, actually predicting their demise. So that might mean they're going to start becoming an energy company as an oil company, but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, um, Jeff, in the politics news this week, there were lots of stories. There's been a lot of stories lately about security clearances at the White House. It turns out that when you work at the White House, you can be exposed to confidential information that have security implications. They like to perform background checks on people and make sure that they're, you know, on the up and up. And uh, a top White House uh, environmental and energy advisor resigned um, a couple weeks ago because he wasn't, he was informed that he was not going to be able to get um, permanent security clearance. And uh, the reason uh, why, do, do you want to take a guess, Jeff? Uh, it probably had something to do with, you know, um, uh, Russian collusion or something. Yes, he definitely uh, enjoyed uh, the borscht. No, uh, this uh, had to do with the fact that he uh, had admitted that he smoked marijuana one time. But I thought he didn't inhale it, so it was okay. Well, now Banks, a former staffer for James Inhofe, you might you might remember him for bringing snowballs onto the floor of the uh, the. Congress and uh, giving a long speech about how climate change Most is Most of your uh, congressional shenanigans, you can always link to those wily Oklahoman climate deniers. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, so uh, he worked at State Department, also on Council, White House Council of Environmental Quality. Um, and uh, uh, basically, um, you know, the Office of Science and Technology uh, at the White House there is... Um, uh, is without a head still, and and that's in, that's something because that's the longest that agency has been without a cabinet member um, since Congress founded it in the seventies. Wow. Well, you know that that just sounds great for downsizing the government. I'm sure Trump hasn't been up to any other nefarious things in the world of energy recently. Well, I mean, if you want to, you have two degrees of separation. We could blame it on Steve Perry. Rick. Perry? Oh, yeah, Rick Perry. See, I always forget the second part. Um, 
Oh, well. So at any rate, uh, the Department of Energy, headed by a Perry of some kind, uh, he uh, they're allocating approximately $6.5 million energy, uh, uh, dollars, uh, towards investing in research and development of large-scale advanced power systems. Uh, that sounds pretty run-of-the-mill. Advanced power systems? That sounds pretty good. I mean, yeah. that, that actually sounds like something not too terrible. Oh, Jeff, I'm sorry. I keep reading everything wrong here. Steve Perry and energy dollars, and that is supposed to be coal-powered systems. Oh, yeah. That, that sounds a little bit more par for the course from the Trump administration. Go all in in coal because nobody else is. Yeah, actually, uh, the, 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 from the DOE, there's actually a, a total of $50 million available um, to support cost sharing on design of large-scale implementation projects for, quote-unquote, transformational coal technologies. Ooh, that sounds quite exciting, the transformational coal, coal technologies. Um, this is also brought to you from the same... Um, area of, of our government that was trying to subsidize coal plants for maintaining 90-day repository of coal because it definitely adds to grid reliability, despite numerous government reports that analyze the grid showing that coal and increased access to coal does not help reliability in the slightest. Yep. And uh, uh, as we continue to see coal plant retirements uh, at continue apace, um, actually, so we, we've seen them, we saw them slightly slow in 2017. Um, I think there was one fewer retirement uh, of coal plant than 2016. But um, coal is on its way out in a lot of ways because of underlying economic forces. Um, Jeff and I have beaten this horse several times on the show. Um, but the economics of natural gas, uh, hardly a horse to beat, Jeff, but one we can. Yeah, so natural gas is really what's driving coal to uh, extinction, I guess. Extinction of coal. Oh, man, I like the way that sounds. So, Jeff, um, uh, speaking of the DOE and and Trump's efforts to kind of uh, roll back things that make sense, um, a federal judge in San Francisco ordered the administration uh, last week to implement um, energy use limits. You might be familiar with these as something that uh, they've decided to privatize. These are energy star limits and and limits for um, energy consumption. These are for portable air conditioners and other projects. Um, the, The Obama administration had signed off on these standards. Standards in late 2016, um, after they had been um, uh, developed and uh, uh, reviewed for over two years. Wait, wait, wait. So, so what you're saying is we were looking to improve energy efficiency for consumers. Something that's turned out pretty well across the board. We've all seen Energy Star on our computers, our refrigerators, things that save us as consumers money. And so that was implemented under the Obama administration. And so. As per all things, is Trump trying to undo it just because it has Obama's name connected to it? Yeah, basically, Jeff. Um, you know, this was an area of appliances that um, had not uh, that were due uh, for an increase in the standard for efficiency, and uh, these rules had been reviewed and and publicly reviewed uh, for quite some time. Um, several states actually sued uh, the uh, sued to uh, force the DOE to implement these rules, and uh, uh, supposedly now they're going to. Um, uh, it's it's uh, it's a wild, wild west out there, Jeff. Wild, wild west is right. But, you know, that's all par for the course in Trumpian America when you talk about energy and climate. And everything we once took for granted is definitely being put on its head. Mm, it might be true. Well, Jeff, you know, while many agencies that are under the direct purview of a Senor Trump. Um, seem to be uh, tilting in the direction of absurdity. The uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, uh, actually seems to be holding fast and kind of moving towards sort of the, the logical technological developments that we've been seeing in the, in the energy sector for the last decade. That's right. And so as we continue to move away from coal and continue to not support nuclear for whatever dumb reason, uh, please call in and we would love to chat with any of you about that if that's a concern for you. But... As we continue to move away from this baseload, dispatchable baseload, and move towards more and more intermittent sources of energy, like wind and solar, which are great, awesome, low-carbon options, um, we run into this issue, which is the sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't always blowing, and building out a huge grid that spans the globe isn't something that we really know how to do or are even planning on doing. 
Yeah, so actually, uh, it turns out that the power grid is a complicated place. And uh, um, there's all these little markets uh, for electricity um, that were somewhat are created by regulation, um, designed to keep uh, electricity flowing at all times, and others created by the economics of power. Now, um, while it is pretty economical to um, uh, exchange electricity over large distances, there is a limit um, to how efficient it is over uh, exceptionally large distances. And, and to some extent, that dictates a certain amount of um, fragmentation of the grid. We have these certain areas. Areas which we call service areas, which are balanced usually, and those balancing areas represent well, just basically big bathtubs across which power can be traded. Now, previously, um, storage was only uh, really a f allowed to play in certain types of markets, and these were basically regulated markets which had very small capacity. They didn't couldn't take a lot of storage, um, but they were high economic value, and so they were really made sense to do. And mo most of the storage markets, right? So. When we've built up the grid and we're talking about reliability so that when you turn on the light switch in your home, you get electricity and lighting. Um, and so that it's a complicated thing to balance the demand with the generation that's happening. And so you do have these this fragmentation in the market to better serve smaller local areas. And so storage has primarily been done using large hydroelectric plants, right? So when you have periods and also balancing the grid to a large extent because when you have periods of overgeneration and lower demand, you can pump water back up a hill basically and add energy storage. And then when you need to draw from these reserves, literally reservoirs, you let the water run through a turbine. And so that's really what energy storage has been, but we all know that's starting to switch a little. It, it, it's changing as companies like Tesla start demonstrating large multi megawatt hour battery installation. And also, the nature of power generation is changing. While before, there may have only been so much demand for energy storage in the grid and only at so much um, for certain types of applications, the types of storage, the uh, returns on that storage, and the dynamics of the grid are changing such that storage is going to play a bigger role, probably, in the future grid. And the FERC is making some changes, um, basically instructing each of these regulatory areas, each of these systems independent system operators um, to uh, draft rules such that they um, can allow storage to compete uh, more uh, fairly uh, in these uh, uh, larger markets, basically the arbitrage markets, these markets for selling um, electricity from when you generate it till when you need it. So in a nutshell, batteries and other energy storage technologies will be able to play better in the electricity market with renewables and other things. And I love to play, Jeff. I love to play. Um, you know, and, and, and I guess, you know, the last piece of renewable news, Jeff, I was reading was not on a, will end on a sad note. So it, it turns out actually that last year, the U.S. solar industry, um, which uh, has been, you know, growing like gangbusters primarily because of employment on the, the, the service end. So these are people installing rooftop residential solar systems. Um, that last, last year, we actually had the first drop in employment uh, in the solar industry. That's, that's a shame. But wait, wait, that, that's, not, that's not desperation and despair that I smell. What is that? <laughs> Oh, oh, it smells musky, Jeff. Ah, America's favorite superhero, Mr. Elon Musk. What's going on in his neck of the woods? Ah, uh, Elon, I do love me some America's real-life Iron Man. Um, Jeff, you know, me personally, and I think Elon too, just still basking in the glow of that Falcon Heavy launch. That was something. Actually, this weekend, um, uh, for those of you in uh, on the West Coast, um, uh, SpaceX is launching uh, some satellites from Vandenberg, which are supposedly going to light up the sky. It's going to be pretty spectacular. Uh, hopefully, it'll be clear out and you can see it. That's the rumor. Remember, it's not some sort of alien Martian vessel or the end of days, although uh, it might be. Um but it's it's going to be a nifty launch of satellites, part of a uh, Elon Musk's goal to make internet from satellites cheaper, better, more amazing. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, the Falcon Heavy launch, I, I mean, I, for those of you who, who either had your head on rock for the last couple weeks or missed it, it was pretty spectacular. Um, you know, Elon has basically doubled the weight limit for junk you can send into orbit. Um, which is pretty awesome. Um, the junk he sent into orbit on that particular spacecraft, the Falcon Heavy, um, was his own cherry red Tesla Roadster. Uh, the cherry red really is the nicest color. Right. And and, and riding in the Tesla Roadster is a Spaceman himself. Um, and so, anyway, on fe- on February 6th, they launched this uh, this thing. And I, and I encourage you to check out this website. It's called Where is Roadster? And uh, if you wish, you will be able to go to that website and find a beautiful spaceman floating around somewhere in orbit around the sun. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. If you feel so inclined, I'm not actively telling you you should visit. But it is interesting. I found it interesting because, um, it, you know, uh, you, can, you, can, you can track him. And that's fun. That is um, fun. In addition to Elon Musk's rocket toys, because let's face it, he's a small child that loves playing with rockets. Um, also good news for Tesla, though, is they have reached... Uh, constraints on the number of Model S vehicles that they can deliver to people. So there was this expectation with the Model 3 coming in that people would be less inclined to buy a Model S, the more expensive luxury car, and buy Model 3s. And so the thought was that the Model 3 would cannibalize the amount of Model S's and Model X's that Tesla was going to be able to sell. But that's not actually what turned out to be the case. It stimulated demand for Model S and Model X orders. And so now they've had to expand the amount of wait time for them to deliver these cars because they are starting to once again reach capacity constraints for how quickly they can manufacture and deliver these sports cars that seemingly everybody loves. And I hope Elon can keep this whole Tesla Ponzi scheme going until all the other car companies are, are fully sunk and committed into their electrification schemes such that we are on an inevitable path towards total and utter vehicle electrification. <laughs> it sounds completely diabolical. But we do know that if we are going to really address climate change... Electrifying the transportation sector is one of the most important things we can do. Oh, God, Jeff. And then I have to do everything else that's important afterwards, like actually make change all my personal habits, don't I? Yeah. Hanj and Hanj alone is responsible for the world's carbon footprint. Mm. So on that, on that note, sobering note, I think we're going to cut to some fine listening tunes. And when we return, we're going to talk to Dr. Alan Jen about electric vehicles and not just Teslas. So stay with us.
Jen, and I'm a researcher at the Institute of Transportation Studies here at uh, UC Davis. Um, and my research focuses on electric vehicles and uh, how transportation can meet, help meet uh, climate mitigation goals. So, Alan, let me start there. Electric vehicles, great technology or greatest technology? <laughs> it's a pretty great technology. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people sort of wrap their, you know, in, in this in this field, wrap their head around the fact that, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, get it into the market. There's all these technical challenges, you know, it's expensive. Um, but if you sort of take a step back and see, you know, these vehicles are coming into this very well-developed market that's been around for 100 years. And in the span of, uh, well, it's it's been about eight years now, uh, we're already seeing, you know, huge inroads into into the technology. So it's, I think it's a super exciting time, um, despite all the sort of challenges that, that you see now. Are electric vehicles basically just like a shoe-in right now? Is there anything that needs to happen with them? Are we all going to be driving them? Is it just now a matter of wait and see what happens and they're pretty much good to go or are there problems? Yeah. So uh, I think there's this difficult question right now in policy about, you know, there's we spend a lot of... Uh, money incentivizing and and you have all these regulatory policies sort of pushing the technology and uh, I think there's always this question looming about when is the right time to sort of uh, back off on this in terms of when you think the vehicles are going to be competitive in and of themselves Um, and that's you know I don't think anyone has sort of a right answer for that there's definitely still you know technical challenges there's still challenges with with um, uh, how much they cost, but from a sort of technology feasibility standpoint, right, it's pretty well demonstrated. You know, people who own electric vehicles, uh, they have the pretty much the same capability as a conventional vehicle. And so, yeah, I, to some extent, I think it's, it's just a matter of time, which isn't to say we, sh- we should stop, you know, pushing or thinking about these issues and, you know, letting it go off on its own. But, uh, I, I do think that the technology has been sort of well demonstrated at this point. So we're definitely out of the golf cart phase of electric vehicles. So when do you expect the average person will own an electric vehicle or be pretty familiar with the technology? Yeah, uh, and that's that's actually one of the, the biggest challenges um, we face today is uh, awareness and knowledge of the vehicles and of the you know, incentives that go along with them. Uh, there have been a number of studies coming out of uh, our institute that have, have examined this, and it's sort of disheartening to see, you know, with a doubling of charging infrastructure in, in the state, 
uh, and a pretty rapid growth of the market, there hasn't been any change in awareness uh, over the last three or four years. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we've started to push on is to help sort of propagate that knowledge uh, through education campaigns, ride and drives, or sort of other mechanisms that could end up being, you know, more cost-effective strategies than necessarily just, you know, throwing more money at incentives, for example. Did you catch the uh, the State of the Union the other night? I did not. Uh, I was busy playing chess. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. I heard you're also, uh, so, you know, man of many pursuits here. You, you are uh, a master chess player? Uh... I'm getting there. I'm not. I'm not quite at the official, you know, national, uh, national master rating level. But that's something that I'm aspiring to. And and also a concert pianist. <laughs> uh, many years ago, yes. And a professional rock climber. Uh, definitely not professional. Um, that would be great if I could actually make money from it. But uh, but competitive. Yeah, I mean, competitive in the sense that I go to competitions, not competitive in the in the sense that I actually am competitive in the competitions. And uh, what what you you know, there's one other thing that I think of a lot, I guess, when I think about cool things that you've talked about doing, and it involves a bicycle. What, what, do, can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a little bit of time off after my my PhD. And I did a cross-country bike ride from San Diego up to Seattle and across to, to Maine uh, for about three months. So, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're biking around the country, how many calories a day are you eating? Oh, gosh. Uh, I would say probably on, in the range of eight to 10,000 calories a day. Eight to 10,000 calories a day. That seems crazy. So, did you ever think about what? I wonder. You know, what's the what was the carbon intensity of your your bike tour? What was the like carbon footprint of this bike trip? Was yeah, it, actually, uh, I did uh, I did some back of the envelope calculations. I still end up being um, a fair bit more efficient than a than a car. Good, good yeah. to hear. I have this uh, green T-shirt that has uh, a picture of a bike, and it says uh, "infinite miles per gallon," and um, I used to. I used to get a lot of flack for this uh, from my sort of engineer friends who are like, oh, you know, that's not actually true, right? Because you're actually, you need to consume some energy to, to go an X amount of miles. But, but technically, miles per gallon, I've never consumed any amount of gasoline in my life. And, and I've gone many miles on my, on my bike. So I, I still say technically infinite miles per gallon. So, Alan, um, even if everyone gets an electric vehicle, they all start driving them. Does that mean we've solved climate change? There's no more issues with that? Or is, is, do electric vehicles help us with uh, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah. So uh, there are a couple important issues to, to think about when we're talking about uh, the impact on, on emissions. Um, there's a common argument about uh, production of the batteries is um, very intensive in terms of emissions, but uh, typically the life cycle uh, of the vehicle in terms of the use phase is what dominates in terms of uh, the carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and so that, that issue is an important one, but probably smaller than the issue of the actual energy that's being uh, used to charge the vehicle and where it comes from. Uh, and so depending on where you are, depending on what time of day that you're charging the vehicle, that can have um, implications in terms of what you're actually doing for emissions. And, you know, in places like California, where the grid is relatively clean, um, you are doing a lot better than uh, pretty much any vehicle that's out there on the market. But um, if you are on the East Coast, for example, there are situations where if you're charging at certain times uh, during the night, in West Virginia, for example, there is a possibility that the marginal amount of electricity being used to charge your vehicle is coming from a coal plant. Um, and so it's not, it's not so cut and dry as to say uh, just adopting electric vehicles solves everything. Um, you have to think about it in terms of uh, how it couples with the grid as well. But one thing I noticed, though, as I know, is like 
you know, there are these EVs coming out, and you're talking about all these EVs in the market, but, you know, there's all these types of cars. There's huge, you know, there's a car model for every person, right? Like every every specific buyer, everything I need, you know, I can find a specific model. But there are, like, only EVs for a couple types of people. So, um, you know, I still feel like how do you how do you kind of go to people who either live in a less urban area or, you know, like a lot of people buy kind of trucks and SUV market um, to think about an SUV and how do you even get the, I mean, what's the chicken and the egg there? How do you break the chicken and the egg? Yeah. So I think that that is starting to change. Um, there are a huge number of vehicle models being rolled out that are going to be electrified in the next, you know, five years. Um, the first electric, uh, SUV just came out, the Mitsubishi Outlander. Um, and as these electric vehicles sort of start to roll out in different vehicle segments rather than just, you know, your typical, you know, compact car, sedan, um, you're going to be hitting segments of the population who, who wouldn't necessarily, you know, consider buying them um, because of not considering the segment or class that they're in. Um, and so as these vehicles start to roll out, uh, I think that you're going to see penetration into different segments of the population. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that having people rely on vehicles and going to like, okay, so if you go from your conventional vehicle to an electric vehicle, um, it's going to be okay. But there's a lot of other issues and maybe externalities that come from vehicle ownership that electrification isn't going to solve. So should we really be pouring a ton of resources and time and energy into trying to get people to adopt electric vehicles as opposed to maybe some alternative like shifting them to public transportation or biking or walking. Um, and it seems like if we do go for electric vehicles, we're just continuing this like lock-in for a built environment to cater to vehicle choice. Yeah, uh, super important point. Um, I think to the extent that you can uh, promote those sort of activities, biking, public transit, um, other modes of transportation, I think that, you know, that's that's great. However, you know, I think, and this may be a bit of a unpopular opinion in terms of, you know, where I sort of work and and, and the folks that I work with. I think, I think that uh, behavioral change is infinitely harder than technological change, um, and to the extent possible, uh, you will. I think that the the problem is more manageable by by technology rather than trying to change people's behavior. Um, not saying that we shouldn't pursue those things. Uh, I simply think it's it's a lot harder. So, what kind of car do you own? Uh, so, I have a 2000 Honda Civic. Uh, it's 19 years old now, um, and. It's it's an old car, and actually, <laughs> I've recently been forced to to stop driving it because gasoline has been sort of leaking into the the interior of the car uh, when it's cold. Um, yeah, and so my my girlfriend has uh, forced me to to start using her vehicle instead. So um, you're you're gonna upgrade that to an electric vehicle uh, any day now? Uh, yeah, I I would love to buy an electric vehicle. I'm sort of still holding out on hope that uh, I'm gonna reach the 20 year mark before I have to change change cars. But um, I feel like I'm yeah no I feel like I'm fighting a a bit of a losing battle here. Well, um, I, I'll have you know that my car just recently passed the milestone of turning 25. Oh, congratulations. Still works great. And it's a Toyota. So, uh, hey, plug for Toyota over Honda, I guess. Well, yeah, well, I mean, how many winters did your Toyota spend on the East Coast? Well, it spent a lot of winters in Colorado, which, I don't know, harsher, maybe? Not sure. But how does uh, cold weather environments and um, living out in these areas where it snows a lot, how is that going to affect electric vehicles and electric vehicle choice and ownership? Yeah, so a um, couple things with, uh, with electric vehicles and, and those type of environments. Um, there are definitely some difficulties uh, for consumers. One of the things that, that they really like is uh, all-wheel drive on vehicles in, in winter environments, you know, to help with the difficulty of, of driving through, you know, harsher, harsher uh, weather conditions. Um, and that, that is something that you don't see a lot in electric vehicles right now that are being offered, but um, I think slowly 
those offerings will be increasing in the future. And so that problem hopefully will solve itself. There used to be a, a sort of big issue with uh, how the battery operates in, in cold weather conditions because it's uh, uh, it has to generate um, heat for the for the cockpit. Um, but I think some of those issues are are being solved in creative ways with more sort of efficient uh, manners of, of of heating the driver or only the driver in, in sort of localized spots and and I think a lot of the preliminary issues that you used to see happening in in cold weather areas uh, where EVs were were operating and and you weren't getting sort of the advertised mileage uh, I think that's that's becoming less of a uh, concern these days. America's favorite superhero, Elon Musk. Yep. Have you have you heard of the Musk? Uh, I have heard of him. Can you smell what the Musk is cooking? Uh, well, he's a he's a big proponent. Um, I think when it comes to the the kind of stuff that that we're doing uh, in terms of you know research. Um, we we sort of are more aloof, I guess, of the sort of hype and the noise, and and sort of more grounded in terms of the like technical reality. Mm. Um, you know, I think, in my opinion, you know, Elon has probably, as a singular person, done you know more than probably anyone uh, I can think of off the top of my head in, in contributing to to pushing for these new technologies that are helping with with uh, climate problems and so certainly I think that his accomplishments aren't aren't to be sort of you know detracted from but I guess I'm you know less I, I buy less into the hype that surrounds you know his products as opposed to what we sort of observe happening in reality hmm so you and Steve Wozniak both I guess are, are. Feeling this way? Did you see this? He was at some conference and basically saying, "You know, I like my Tesla, but I don't believe anything Tesla says anymore. That guy doesn't—he's not really <laughs> believable." So I thought that was a very good, uh, a very good call on Steve's part. Um, but you know, so I mean, we could go deep into the whole of of, of criticizing or or asking where he pulls these. I, the Musk pulls some of these uh, claims he makes out of, but. You know, I think there's something else here that that he's done well. You know, like he, he had the, the 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 boring company thing, right? Like it, we were talking about last week or the week before, I think Jeff that he made like a million dollars selling hats, right? And then he made a couple million dollars selling flamethrowers last week, right? So you know, <laughs> he is really successful at making things sexy for no reason, including electric vehicles, it seems. And so you know, in this like in this uh, making EV sexy campaign that we're that we're we, I think we're going to start here today officially. This is the beginning of our our long running initiative called Make EV Sexy. Okay. I'm on board. On board. Um, you know, how do we how do we have how do we help policy, or how do we make like how do we use policy to help make EVs sexier? Like, what do we do? How can we, us us little research informing policy people or whatever, our scientists who do research, how are we going to help make EVs sexier? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 problem is would be a good one to have. I think the first step still is is getting people to even know about electric vehicles or like understand how they work. Um, there are tons of misconceptions. Uh, we had there's a colleague of mine had fielded a survey, uh, and only 20% of people could correctly uh, identify what a Toyota Prius uh, fuels up with. Uh, and so there's there's still like a huge amount of uh, misconception, misinformation about these. You know we. As researchers, we're in this, you know, in this world, we're very engaged, so we know all about this stuff. Um, but when you s- take a step back and, you know, talk to the general populace, I mean, even among your friends who, who aren't in transportation, you talk to them about electric vehicles. And, uh, yeah, like, it's it's pretty astounding, right, like what, what people uh, uh, don't know about about them. What do anybody know about their cars, though? I mean, like, let's be real. Nobody knows about their cars. I I, I feel like that's the total case that people are like, dumbfounded by a vehicle. They have no oh idea yeah, it no, it's great. I I love it when we have uh, free form surveys and people are like, yeah, I own a Toyota Civic, uh, and you know, it's 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 
it's it makes me tear my hair out. <laughs> so, I mean, why is it that people need to know? Why do people need to understand more about EVs to adopt them when they already have so much ignorance about the way their cars work? Well, I think I think it helps with the even considering it as sort of a product that you you might buy in the future. Um, if you don't know anything about it, you know, you go to the dealership, you already have your your eye set on sort of this set of, of, of vehicles, um, sort of what we, we call sort of a consideration set, uh, and your electric vehicle might not even be in there, right? Um, and so without knowing anything about them, I think the consideration for you know adopting the technology is, is going to be way lower. You talk about this consideration set for electric vehicles, but... Um, what's the current consideration set for real vehicles? What is the biggest factor that determines what vehicle uh, people end it's up purchasing? Totally random, man. We we used to think, uh, you know, in in the in the research realm, you talk about, you know, this person who buys this Honda Civic, and and we we want to go back and sort of understand, you know, what other cars that they they may have uh, wanted to buy. And, and so usually you think, well, let's think about cars that are sort of similar. Um, so maybe he also considered, you know, a Toyota Corolla or something like that. But but in reality, it's it's wild. It's all over the place. And when, when, when we actually uh, when we actually ask people, um, you know, the, the person is considering you know, a Toyota Prius and a, and a Ford F-150, for example, totally disparate. And so, you know, Understanding that thought process, there's so many, you know, complicating factors. You know, it could be, you know, things that you you drove in in your childhood or you saw in a movie and you thought was cool. Um, it's it's less straightforward than than a lot of you know people simplify and make out to be. I mean, case in point, actually, my when I was growing up, uh, the the two cars that my dad was considering. Uh, purchasing when I was in high school uh, was between a Mini Cooper and a Toyota uh, Land Cruiser. Yeah, it's like the smallest vehicle and the largest vehicle that you could possibly buy. And what was the factor there that was was the common factor for that vehicle? Actually, I I don't know. Well, I know for the the Land Cruiser, uh, we had a Land Rover before, and so we used to do a lot of off-roading. Uh, you know, out in the desert and stuff, and so um, the the cruiser would be, you know, capable of of doing a lot of those those trips and keeping up with those activities. But then, you know, the Mini Cooper, super fuel efficient uh, and you know small and and handy. I guess I I, I never really uh, asked him why why he he was deciding between those cars, but yeah. And so, what did he end up going with? So we we ended up getting the cruiser for like a couple of weeks, and then he changed it out for the Cooper. Oh, so we got both. <laughs> yeah, we got well. Yeah, we we ended up getting one for a little, for a short amount of time, and then the the Cooper long term. Cool. So uh, how cheap is it to run an electric vehicle? So if I'm driving somewhere and I need to fill up a tank, right? Like what what is that sort of thing? Like how much would it cost me to fill up my EV to drive? Like you know. 300 miles or 400 miles, whatever I might get on a typical vehicle. Yeah. So the math behind this problem is not as straightforward as, as one would think because um, when you're talking about comparisons, one of the difficult things is understanding the counterfactual, which is if you weren't driving the electric vehicle, what car would you have been driving? Uh, if it were a Prius... Um, the equivalent in terms of electricity is about 25 cents per kilowatt hour. And to give a reference, electric vehicles in California pay sort of on the average of you know, between 15 to 17 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, but if you're talking about sort of replacing a less and less efficient vehicle, you know, on average in California, uh, I think it's about 27 miles per gallon, which is around 50 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so you're talking about saving on the order of magnitude three times cheaper than a conventional vehicle. 
Wow, so that sounds pretty good. So if it costs me 30 bucks to fill up my current Toyota Corolla, I can just be like, all right, maybe $10 if I had an electric vehicle. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and one of the you know nice things about the refueling is uh, when you start to talk talk to electric vehicle owners, you know they one of the points of pride that they that they you know like to emphasize is, is that they haven't been to the gas station uh, you know in in months. Uh, this so this is referring to plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, uh, which have both uh, a battery and a combustion engine, and so it runs on the battery until until you're running out of uh, out of energy in the battery or the range of the vehicle, and then it turns on an engine. And so the engine is sort of a backup, but a lot of sort of longer range plug-in hybrids, they they sort of espouse that, you know, they haven't had to go to the gas station in, in several months or in the last year even. Um, and so that's that's an interesting that's an interesting concept I think in when when people think about refueling for electric cars, there's this notion that, oh, I'm I'm you know, one of the things that I don't like is the fact that it takes forever to charge up the battery. And so, you know, whereas at a gas station I go and I pump, I'm in five minutes, I'm, I'm full, I'm good to go. Uh, whereas, you know, it could take several hours to tar- charge up the vehicle. On the other hand, I think what a lot of conventional owners don't realize is that while you don't, you don't have to do these, you know, intermittent trips to the gas station if you can just top off every day. And so you never really run into this issue. The car is sitting there, you plug it in. Um, and and the fueling, you you never even have to take that extra trip to, to, to fill up the car like you would with a conventional vehicle. And so I think there actually are great benefits to, to being able to charge it all the time. Thanks, Alan. That was great. Absolutely.